Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. I am super excited to introduce my colleague and friend, Ash Kansalehi, a third-year medical student at McGill, and our guest for today's episode, Dr. Sanders. So Dr. Sanders is a family doctor and chair of palliative medicine at McGill University. Having only moved to Montreal in 2021, he's fairly new to our McGill community. And before coming to Montreal, he received his MD in 2007 from the University of Vermont and his master's in science in medical anthropology at the University College London in the UK. Dr. Sanders then completed his residency in family and social medicine in New York, and that was followed by a fellowship in interdisciplinary palliative care at Harvard, where he also served as an assistant professor to medical students. Dr. Sanders is a physician investigator whose research has focused on the intersection of serious illness, culture, and communication. And at McGill, he's also taken on an active role in part of the whole person care curriculum, which is how we were lucky enough to meet him. So thank you so much for being with us. We've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to meet with you. So it's a pretty remarkable little dossier that I just read out to our our listeners at the moment. And you've taken a really interesting path to where you are at the moment at McGill. So can you give us a sense and our listeners a sense of your pathway to to where you are right now and how you initially decided to go into medicine? Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you listen to all the things that one has done in retrospective that they all sort of fit together nicely. Uh, but in, but prospectively when you're, when you're um, imagining your career and doing things that interest you, it feels there's a lot of uncertainty, I would say. And, um, and so in some ways I can look back and say, Oh, that all makes sense. And it all fits together quite nicely. But in the, in the act of, I think, realizing my education, it felt very meandering and uncertain at times. So, so just to, just to preface it with that, I guess, you know, I always wanted to be a doctor as far, as long as I could remember, since before I can remember, actually, my parents, my mother said that um, one day I walked into the kitchen and said, I wanted to be a doctor and it felt like the truth and, and it never really varied from that. And I think what changed over time was, you know, ideas that you have when you're young about what kind of doctor you want to be, because it's ill-defined, I think, as a child, what a doctor actually is in some ways. But when I was uh, 18, uh, let's see, my, my best friend and my best and oldest friend, Melissa, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And she was a year older than she was, well, she was two weeks older than me, but a year ahead of me in school. And so she'd already started at university and she began her treatments for with chemotherapy and radiation and the various <clears throat> things that she had for her ovarian cancer. And I recall when I was 21, I was um, in midterms at my university. And um, I got a call from my mother saying that the doctors didn't think that Melissa was going to survive through the night. She was at home in her, uh, at her house in Los Angeles and I was in Philadelphia. And um, I, you know, I, I sat down on my steps. I can remember it was a warm, uh, a warm day in October and I sat down on my steps and I just thought, you know, I, I kind of composed a letter to her saying that, you know, it was okay for her to let go. She'd been through a lot over the last few years. And I thought this is a, pro- she's not going to survive. And so I bought it and I was in the middle of midterm. So I thought, well, I'm not going to fly out tonight and I'll go out on Friday and I'll be there for her funeral. And um, so the days went by and Friday I flew out to Los Angeles and 
drove to her house and she was still alive. And I spent myself and two of her other really close friends from growing up who I'd known basically my whole life. We spent the last, uh, I guess, 18 hours or so of her life at her bedside, just, you know, talking and laughing and remembering and being with her. And, um, and through the night, I arrived on like a Friday afternoon and, and through the night I stayed up with her nurse. She had a, she had a team of nurses who were of home care nurses who, what I would recognize now to be palliative care nurses, <clears throat> but I don't even think they called themselves that really, but they were home care nurses. And, and I stayed up through the night with them administering pain medicines to her, drawing syringes of fentanyl. She had a lot of pain. She was in terrible pain. And the next morning I remember going to sleep um, on a couch outside, um, outside of her room. I actually have a photograph of it that I keep. Someone took a photograph of me that morning um, sleeping on this couch. And I remember being woken up and someone said, you know, we need to move Melissa back into her bed. She had been in a chair out of bed. <clears throat> and so I went into the room and I moved her into her bed. And I just knew that something was different, like something was happening. And I felt like there was a different energy in the room. And her nurse, the, her, so the sort of senior nurse, with whom she'd grown very close, told everybody to leave the room. And I said, I'd really like to stay. And, and so I stayed and, um, and her grandmother stayed. And so, you know, with her grandmother on one side of her bed and me on the other, and she in the middle sort of pregnant with tumor and, you know, really uh, clearly uncomfortable. I held her hand and, and the nurse gave her pain medicines and, and her breathing slowed and she died as we talked to her. What I remember at that time was this sort of curious sense of um, elation. Like I felt almost like it felt almost inappropriate, but I felt like I felt like something had happened and I didn't know what to make. I didn't know how to make sense of it, but I felt elation. And, you know, and a little, I felt a little bit of guilt, I think, with that because it felt like a positive emotion in some ways and in response to this really tragic thing. And her, you know, her parents were not there at the time she died. They were up in their room, I think still, hoping that she would somehow survive this cancer, even though she was so clearly dying. So anyway, so I, so I left Los Angeles with that, you know, having had that experience and I subsequently graduated from school and went um, traveling around the world for about a year and a half. Uh, it was something that I'd always wanted to do. My parents had, before I was born, they'd spent a couple of years traveling around the world. And I sort of always held that out as something that I wanted to do. And so I graduated from school and worked and saved up some money and then left for this long trip around the world. And during that time, I had a lot of opportunity to reflect on what had happened. And, you know, it occurred to me over time that what had happened was some, that I, what I had felt was something, some sort of healing in some way. And, I, and again, I, I think I have more ways of thinking about that now after, you know, a decade of work in palliative care, but, but I had this intuitive sense that something positive had happened, even though she had died. And so I, while I was traveling, for instance, I did, I spent some time um, at Mother Teresa's hospice in Calcutta, caring for the, the dying indigent there. And, and I, you know, that was a fascinating experience in part because, you know, it was this, there were two, two uh, men's and a woman's ward in this large hospice in this busy neighborhood in Calcutta and a sort of an army of volunteers and the men on one side and the women on the other. And there were these sort of up to 50 dying men and women on either side. And basically the day was quite simple. You know, we started off by feeding them and then carrying them to the baths, literally carrying these frail men to the baths and bathing them and then drawing them and returning them, giving them medications, helping them move their limbs so that they didn't get stiff. And it just, I just realized that it was that, you know, caring for the dying is really just 
about caring for the, you know, it's just helping people live in some way as best way as possible for as long as possible. So I had these, so I had these couple experiences in my, my pocket, you know, you know, a year later or so when I arrived at medical school. And, you know, as you may remember, you know, the first few days of medical school are a very exciting time. And people are saying, you know, what are you going to be? What, what kind of doctor are you going to be? And some people are very clear, you know, you have the people who are like, well, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon and other people <laughs> have no idea. And I think I really wasn't sure. But then I had a mentor, I had a, an assigned medical school mentor who was a family doctor who, who also did palliative care. And when I found out what he did, it was like, it was just like a, uh, something switched. And I just knew that that was exactly what I was going to do. And that was, I couldn't think of anything better. I knew I wanted to do palliative care. And I thought that being a family, training as a family doctor would be the best way to do that just because of the, because dying is a social event that involves a family. So interestingly enough, I think in some ways that's, that started my journey to McGill because when I was a third year medical student at the University of Vermont, I, um, I, knew that, I knew that there was a palliative care program here. I didn't know much about the history of palliative care at that time. And so I emailed the, the coordinator at McGill and they said, oh yeah, we have a spot. And then so I came up and I spent the summer of 2006 here working with Bernard LaPont at the Jewish General Hospital. And I lived in a little $200 a month uh, room um, up the way up L'Esplanade, like not like probably two blocks from where I live now in Mile End. And I would ride my bike or walk across town to the Jewish General and I would spend my days working with Bernard. And I, and I learned a lot about what palliative care was and it, and it you know, it just made sense. I just, I realized that this was exactly the kind of care that I wanted to provide. And well, so let me, let me just say that that relationship with Bernard is really what ended up, you know, resulting in me coming to McGill eventually, because we, we remained friends and stayed in touch over the years and would see each other at meetings and things like that. And in September of, I guess, September of 2020, he called me and told me that he was planning to retire and he wanted to put my name into the ring for, for this job of the Cappy and Eric uh, M. Flanders Chair of Palliative Care, which was the first such chair in, of palliative care in North America. And I kind of thought, okay, well, that's really kind of you. And there's no way that that's going to be possible because I'm relatively early in my career compared to some people who have chairs like this. And, and then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try, I'm going to give it my best shot and see what happens. And um, somehow there was a real alignment around vision for what palliative care McGill could be. And, and, and here I am some years later. So <laughs> it's a, it feels like a very winding path in some ways. And then in other ways, it feels like, you know, a straight arrow. McGill is so lucky to have you. And in some ways I was wrong. You have actually your path towards McGill started a very long time ago. We really appreciate <laughs> you sharing that story about your, your friend, Melissa. And it seems like in retrospect, at least all of these different influences have kind of, you know, come together to create your, your path here at McGill. And I, I can't help but be struck a little bit about this, this feeling of elation that you describe in the the process of being with your your best friend as she died and I'm wondering whether you've since experienced anything like that with your patients or how you reflect on that 
mm-hmm. given all of the experiences that you've had since then. In some ways, as a, as a listener, I can also appreciate that that feeling of elation could potentially come from just the privilege of being with someone in those moments. But I'm wondering now, looking back on it, have you had the same kind of experience again? Or was it really just with Melissa that you had that, that sensation? Well, I think that uh, I have had that sensation since. I don't know if it's the with the same intensity, but you know, I was struck the first time I was ever in a room with a person who was delivering a baby as a medical student. And and I was struck by the sort of similar energy. And this is this is where we're not immune to sort of magical thinking as uh, as physicians and as humans. I mean, there's you know, I always sort of thought, is this is this sort of about the um, sort of metaphysical transition from one state of being to another that, that, that feels so special and different. And, and I, as is true for many of us, the first time we attend a birth or, or deliver a baby, it's a very moving experience. You can't help but feel that sort of um, frisson in the air. There's something happening, you know? And, you know, that, that feeling can strike us at different times in our lives in different settings of that sort of feeling of that there's, you know, something in the air. And, uh, and I have felt that at times when people are dying, you know, it's ironic in that even as a, or I don't know if it's irony, but it's, it's interesting that as a palliative care physician, you know, I don't often attend that many deaths. It's not um, because death is unpredictable in many ways. And, you know, I mean, while we have, while we can understand, while we can see that a person is dying um, in some way or another, it's very rare that I'm actually there when a patient dies. But when I have been there, you know, I have felt that. And I think that what it reflects for me <clears throat> is something that was sort of um, there at the very f- beginning of palliative care. And Cicely Saunders, who, was, who founded the modern hospice movement in the 1960s, and then Balfour Mount, who was here at McGill and learned from her directly, sort of articulated what I think is a really radical idea in healthcare and medicine, which is that healing is possible through the course of serious illness and on up until the end of life. And that is of a radical idea in my mind that even even while the rest of medicine sort of treats and society to some extent treats the dying process and the process of being ill as one of progressive degradation of the body and even of the mind perhaps <clears throat> that this idea that there can be a move towards integrity and wholeness in this process is is profound and i think that that is to some degree, what I experienced was this was the was healing at the end of life. And in Melissa's case, you know, it was a it was a in some ways a relief from this um, existential and physical suffering that she was experiencing that was really, you know, difficult to control in some ways. I mean, she was a a very bright, passionate 21-year-old, you know, and you can just, you know, the the amount of existential angst I think that came with that and also the inability to really talk about it with anybody, which is where I saw as I, as I came to understand, you know, what I've written in the past is that like, I, I came to really see the need for palliative care before I knew what it was, because I think that the, the, what I would like to imagine is that families in situations similar to what Melissa's was in would have the kind of support that palliative care services provide in helping people and families prepare for what might come. You know, and that's that's so much of the work that we do is helping people um, prepare because so many people approach the end of their life 
you know, as if it were a car crash, you know, as if they ran into a wall at 80 miles per hour, they end up in the emergency room, uncertain about, you know, where they are in their illness and what was, and then they learn that they're dying and their family learns that they're dying. And it's a, it's, it's a tremendous psychological adjustment to have to make in a very short period of time. And whereas if people have the, the ability to, if people understand what may be coming and have the opportunity to prepare, it's one of the most profound things we can do for a family who are experiencing serious illness to give them that sort of opportunity to adjust and prepare for what may come. <clears throat> We're really fascinated by all your experiences to date. I, I understand that you actually took some time to also do a master's degree in between medical school and your residency training. Um, yeah. We're wondering what encouraged you to do that? And in retrospect, what do you think you gained from this experience? Well, I hate to attribute it all to a girl, um, but, <laughs> but when I was traveling, I met, a, and it, it's, it's only, it is partially true, but when I was traveling, I met a woman in, in, um, in Southeast Asia on the side of a road in a little village in Northern Laos. And she was also traveling alone. And now she's downstairs about three floors. <laughs> and that was 20 years ago. And, um, and Caroline, my wife is from England. And when I was coming close, you know, imagining what was going to happen at the end of medical school, I had already figured out where I wanted to go to residency. I knew that I wanted to do urban underserved primary care as a, as a, uh, as a training program. And I thought, you know, it'd be really hard on us having lived transatlantic and had this transatlantic relationship for the better part of five years for, for Caroline to move to New York and for me to be an intern, <laughs> essentially working 80 hours a week. And I thought, what can I do? Like, occurred to me that I really wanted to take a year off. So I started thinking about what kinds of things I could do. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll do a public health degree. And I started looking at public health programs. And, you know, I really wasn't that interested in a lot of what they learned in, in master's in public health. But the thing that I was really interested in was the medical anthropology component. And so I started, I said, okay, well, maybe I can study medical anthropology. And so I started looking around and um, and then I thought, okay, well, I'm, how am I going to pay for this? Because I'm, you know, a, heavily indebted 25 year old, <laughs> 20, I think I was probably 26 or 27 at that point. And I thought, okay, so I looked around for grants for which I was in, for which I was eligible. And the only one that I could really find was a Fulbright um, scholarship. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. And so I applied for a Fulbright scholarship with the, with the intention of studying, of doing a master's degree in medical anthropology and um, and studying um, barriers to utilization of hospice among South, uh, South Asian Muslims in East London. And, you know, in one of life's many moments of serendipity, um, I remember getting this envelope in the mail saying that I'd been awarded this scholarship. And it was, I think it was probably the most <laughs> happy moment of my life because it like it just meant I don't know it was it meant that I could go be with Caroline that I could do something that was also aligned with my career interests and it was gonna and 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 so that September I moved to or well I guess I moved in the summer to, to England to be with Caroline and and then I did my master's degree and um, so it's partially about doing that but also it represented to me sort of a culmination I think of my thinking about you know having traveled around the world and experienced many different cultures it, it felt like that was. Um, that just felt really important for me as a, um, to understand, I think, as I started thinking about, 
you know, what I wanted to do. And I, I will add that, you know, when I arrived at medical school, while I was, I was uncertain on the first day of school about what I wanted to be, I was pretty certain that I had no interest in research. And I just thought, oh, and I, and I looked around and the four MD PhD students who were going to spend seven years in Vermont. And I thought they are crazy. Um, I cannot imagine because, you know, I was 25. I was a little bit, I was a few years older than some of my colleagues. And I thought there's no way. Anyway, I look back and think that was silly, but, but then by the time I finished medical school, I was very clear that I, I wouldn't have as fulfilling a career in medicine if I couldn't have some of the skills and time to answer the questions that came up for me, because there's so many interesting questions. I mean, it's one of the amazing privileges of this education is not only the number of things that you can do, but the number of questions with which you can engage. I mean, they're, they're limitless. And, um, and so I was very interested in that. And this was the, uh, the kind of research that was about understanding people's lives and how it affected their experience of health and well-being and illness really just struck me as a being, you know, of greatest interest. You know, on that note, I was actually, I was, I, I, this hadn't occurred to me, but I remember reading Mountains Beyond Mountains, which was the Tracy Kidder book about Paul Farmer. And Paul Farmer just died, you know, a couple of weeks ago in, uh, in Rwanda. And um, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that in a long time, but it was probably that which probably turned me on to medical anthropology in the first place. Uh, in some way, because that book came out when I was a first year medical student. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think sometimes as trainees, it's really refreshing to hear about how your professional life has come to be and then how you've made decisions based on your personal life too. Because I know I can speak for myself when I am always considering my partner when I'm making decisions professionally. And sometimes it feels like in medicine, that's not the right thing to do, or you should be really, really focused and always thinking about your professional life first. And it's just really refreshing to hear that you were able to to bring those two important things together and go abroad and be with your partner I know that Asha and I we both also do long distance with our partners at the moment during medical school we were just talking about this actually before we jumped on the call about how we're balancing that with uh you know thinking about residency and future applications and where to go next so it's uh thanks for sharing that because it's it's always nice to hear how it how it works out for people when they just follow what's important to them at that time. You know, it's funny because when I, I'll tell you a story that um, I think has been emblematic of this my whole life. And when I was, I was, so I was, I knew that I wanted to travel around the world. And one of the ways that you can do this is that airlines typically have these, what are called sort of around the world tickets, right? And so there's these sort of um, batches of tickets that will last you a year that go from places like I don't know if you're in Canada, maybe it's like Vancouver, Sydney, Sydney, um, Denpasar, Denpasar, Singapore, and, uh, you know, Bangkok, uh, Calcutta, Delhi, you know, and so on and so forth around the world. And they have this sort of well-defined path around the world. I remember having this conversation with my dad and I said, you know, these tickets are great because they're kind of, you know, they're, they're well-defined and they're cheap. And, you know, if you could imagine, you could buy an around the world ticket for like $3,000. It's remarkable, right? You think about how much we (laughs) spend on our daily lives. And I said, you know, but none of them go exactly the places I want to go. And he said, well, he said, I think the most important thing is, is like, figure out where you want to go and then just find the way to get there. Like, it just seems so simple in some ways, because 
there's lots of ways in which we're told what we what we should do based on either our our mentors experiences or what the average person does and um and i've never really you know i've just really never been interested in that in some ways and i think it's i've always i've always held that advice very closely to very closely because i think you, know, you just have to figure out a way there's all, almost always a way and when there isn't you adjust and and you know and i maybe it's a feature of my personality that i don't tend to remember the things like that that don't work out because i think in retrospect you look back and and your your mind has a way of you know making sense of your life and um and in fact that's that's kind of what we're trying to give people the opportunity who have a serious illness, right? And are facing their death is we want to give them the opportunity to look back and say, how has this life made sense to me? Um, and because that is in some ways that that meaning is in some ways, how we, how we get through life, you know? So I, so I think it's very important to think I have many mentors in my life. And I, and so if they, if you, if your listeners take away one thing, I think it's, you know, cultivate mentorship because it's very important in our work, I think. And one of my mentors, you know, said to me, um, you know, your careers are full of zigs and zags and, and you shouldn't necessarily try to erase those and to, to, to achieve some sort of linear path. In the end, it all feels linear because it's all the things that happen to you. But, but, you know, you don't have to feel tied to one thing or one moment in your career and that's it they it doesn't mean you can't change if, if you're doing something that you don't like and um and my other mentor <laughs> who i respect in a lot you know in so many ways you know kind of adheres to sort of a well well trodden path and is more conservative i think and has sort of always said well that's not really how you would do it if you're doing this and um and in the end i kind of have to say to myself well what am i doing that's true to myself and how can i you know be respectful of the ways in which people do things but also kind of do it my own way because you know this is our you know this is our you know we don't know for that we have other shots at this life but but i you know for me trying things and being willing to fail and even if it's even if it doesn't sort of fit the way that people typically do things has been very rewarding and seems to, you know, I, I feel has some cohesion in and of itself, even though at the times it felt like it was, you know, taking lots of breaks and <laughs> doing things for love and not, um, not, um, you know, what, what would have been expected has been very valuable. I appreciate your resilient and versatile attitude with, you know, having these issues like a long distance relationship or trying to navigate your career and being able to overcome these challenges with that mindful thinking and attitude. So on that topic, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face during your medical training? Well, you know, it's interesting. So I, I came out of my master's degree in, in medical anthropology, thinking that I was really well prepared to understand the sort of complex cultural milieu that was taking place in the Bronx in New York, which is one of the most culturally diverse places in in the country certainly New York City. Um, and, and I just thought oh, this is going to be really, I was really excited about it. And I was really excited about what my training prepared me to do and think about in terms of how people from different cultures engage in medical culture. And, and I was really excited by the idea that medicine is in and of itself a culture and it's not some sort of you know, thing that is just exists in the world. It's, it's, it is a very much a culture with its own norms and traditions. And, and, and uh, so I was really excited about that. And then I got to uh, New York and I started working 
What I remember experiencing almost as like a slap in the face was just the profound, just how little that mattered in the face of racism and poverty that I was encountering every day. And, and what I remember was just having to confront in a very intense way, what it meant to be white in, in, in my case, in the US, in America. I don't think it's that different necessarily in Canada, but I think we under there's a, there's a ways in which that's the experience is obscured in Canada in ways um, that's you know a little bit more um, visible in, in the U.S. But I you know I, I so I'm a white man, straight white man, um, and raised in a very white state in the U.S you know, surrounded by white people. And, uh, and I trained in a very white place. And, you know, I was fortunate to have experienced in my life, you know, what it felt like to be conscious of that whiteness in, in various places where people were mostly black and brown in my travels. But, um, you know, just confronting every day the reality that my patients were experiencing, not as a result of anything other than their, this color of their skin and their, and their poverty. And that was, really, I mean, I just remember really struggling with that. I remember really struggling with learning about what, what my own privileges were in the world and what that meant vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, versus other people's experience. And I just remember that being a very difficult experience my first year. It was, you know, it was very positive experience and very transformative for me. And it's really shaped everything that I do in my career to some extent, but it, it was in some ways, shaking up the foundation of what I knew myself to be and, and how I existed in the world and what are the ways in which I could engage in the world. And, you know, frankly, what are the risks that I could take as a white person and not fail, uh, you know, as a straight white male, um, like there were many risks that I could take in the world. And, you know, that's destabilizing. I think that's why a lot of people are resistant to thinking about it and, and, and hold on to this idea of sort of meritocracy and that it's hard to confront one's own privilege. And, and I, I have to say that was one of the more difficult and meaningful professional experiences that I had. You know, I, there, there are a number of others. I mean, there's, there, there are many opportunities to gain humility in that, <laughs> particularly as, a, as an academic physician, because, you, you know, part of succeeding as an academic physician is accumulating a, a number of failures in terms of writing grants and not getting them, things like that. But, you know... <laughs> the only failure is not to persevere in some way. This discussion that you're having about almost stripping you of your naivete around the, the privilege that often people don't like to recognize, it's very uncomfortable. I can imagine yeah. that was a pretty profound experience. And mm -hmm. you also mentioned something else about the importance of failure. And one thing that uh, we're trying to do in this podcast as we talk about wellness, as we move through our training is normalizing failure a little bit, because I think there, we've said this on the podcast before, but I think a lot of people that go into medicine have a bit of an allergic reaction when they think about their own failure or just failing in general, because in, in lots of cases, in order to get into medicine, there isn't that much room for failure up until that point. There is, of course, but uh, maybe you're less accustomed to it by the time you get into medicine. And then I think you're, you're kind of getting into these smaller and smaller groups of people who are all achievers and failure needs to become a regular part of your day and a regular part of your week. Uh, and there's a certain level of discomfort that you need to overcome for that. So just in the spirit of, of normalizing failure, can you, can you speak to us about a failure that you've had in your life and, and what you learned from it? 
Yeah. Well, I think that the idea about failure is really important. And I love this sort of idea of like failing forward, <laughs> you know, because it encapsulates this idea that you can grow through, can and can grow through failure. In fact, you know, I, I always tell my children, like I'm teaching, my, I'm trying to get my, I don't know if I'm teaching, uh, <laughs> I'd be stretching it, but my daughter who's eight to ski or ice skate or whatever we've been doing this winter since we went to Montreal. And I say to them, like, if you're not falling, you're not trying, you know, because if you're, it means you're, if you're falling, it means you're pushing yourself in some way that you're, is beyond what your current skill is. And, um, and that will catch up, but you can only do that if you, if you're pushing yourself in some way. And then when you push yourself, you fall, it's inevitable in some way. And so, so I think that that's been helpful for me. I mean, I, you know, I wrote three versions of a career development award in the U S just to give you some, like a very specific example. And uh, first was so I wrote the K award in the U S and it didn't get it. I got a decent score, but it wasn't funded. And, you know, coming from a place like Harvard, where there's a lot of people who get that on the first try, it was like, it felt a little uncomfortable. And, but then I thought, you know, this is just part of it. And so, and I was trying to do something that I thought was progressive and new. And so and my mentor was very encouraging. So I rewrote the grant and I got a better score. Uh, which was good. At least it was in the right direction. <laughs> and then, but I still didn't get funded. I thought, oh, this is really, this is tough. And then I wrote another one and that one was not even discussed, which means the so the <laughs> falls into like the bottom. And I thought it was so much better. So there's things like that that are, that are humbling, you know? I'll tell you, the most humbling thing in my life right now is taking French classes. <laughs> but, and being a you know feeling like a you know not a complete beginner but like an intermediate learner and like but feeling uncertain you know a lot in that space and actually I think you know in my better moments I think this is a really good experience to continue to have and I will you know I will it brings to mind when I was a palliative care attending so in you know some years into after my fellowship because I stayed in Boston after my fellowship and worked as a as a physician there. And there was a 50, I mean, he must've been in his mid fifties, a very senior pediatric cardiology professor from the children's hospital who came and did a fellowship in palliative care for a year. And I just thought, wow, that is an, a tremendous display of humility and of, you know, lifelong learning. And, you know, there's a very senior person in a very hierarchical place who, who basically put themselves back in somewhere and in the training hierarchy and sat with what, you know, what it means to learn and be uncomfortable in that space. Cause part of learning is being uncomfortable, right? Being on, you know, cope and grasping with our, the things that we don't know and thinking about how, what it, what it looks like to other people to not know. And, you know, it's particularly in this environment where we're all sort of used to succeeding in the ways that society tells us this is important. So anyway, <laughs> I could probably go on, but I can totally connect to the humbling experience of learning French in Montreal because I moved to Montreal with no French and now I'm in clinical milieus where I, I speak French for like 50% of the time. Yeah. And 
when you've considered part of your identity as being a very good communicator and that feeling like one of your strengths and then suddenly you're in a situation where you cannot lean on that strength anymore and every single conversation takes 150 times more cognitive bandwidth it is yeah. the most humbling experience and I was actually uh, talking to my partner about this because you know when I, I moved to Canada when I was 17 to Vancouver originally and moved to a place where like from a very different environment I grew up in Indonesia and then moved to Canada so it was very different but I still spoke the language and yeah. then when I moved to Montreal and I didn't speak the language that everybody else did that transition was so much more difficult even though mm -hmm. I was moving within the same country because yeah. just not being able to connect to people in a way that I was so used to being able to connect with them was so 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 hard for me at the beginning and it really made me think and made me reflect a lot about the just how difficult it could be to be immigrating to a country where you're learning a new language in in addition to how different culturally it might be and all of the other components that make that difficult it's been such a good experience i would never trade it for the world even though there have been times during my first two and a half years in montreal where i have been the biggest stress basket because i have felt so much i don't know just anxiety about learning french and also like you know doing medicine so it's been uh, such a good learning experience oh, challenging well, that's good. but uh <laughs> but challenging isn't like challenging isn't bad right i think that's what you know, we know that in some ways in our bodies, people who go into medicine have, for the most part, always challenged themselves. There's a lot of inherent motivation, I think, amongst people who go into medicine, mm -hmm. um, intrinsic, intrinsic motivation. And, you know, and we challenge ourselves in lots of ways. And it's always interesting. And I think this is some part of medical education, actually, we become somehow resistant to being challenged in some ways, in part because there's this culture of knowing that is like positivist truth that somehow you know it then you just know it. everything can be known in some way and and somehow i think that that undermines the normality of being challenged and even though we we, we all struggled to get here right we all struggled to get to medical school so anyway you know i think it's something that we can, we should, we should cultivate in ourselves because it is, you know, it is, and it certainly helps us, I think, align better with our patients who are so almost, you know, who are a hundred percent of the time challenged by their experience, challenged, humbled, you know, torn asunder by their, by their illnesses. And, and I think that our own ability to grapple with our own challenges and to challenge ourselves sort of continuously helps us understand their experiences better in some ways. Uh, on that note, I'd like to pivot to the topics of, you know, wellness. And uh, we're wondering, mm -hmm. have you had the chance to engage in mindfulness? And if so, where and when did you become interested in mindfulness? And how do you think this practice has influenced your professional trajectory? Yeah, well, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm a mindfulness expert. I had, you know, in my, I think part of of the experience I had when I was traveling was that I got to, I, I learned and subsequently practiced a lot of meditation. I remember a lot, the, the sensation of what that felt like and being able to, for example, connect with myself through breath. I'd like to say that that was something that was more a part of my daily life now, and it isn't in some ways. And yet I, I still feel connected to that moment. I felt like I built a really strong foundation for mindfulness in that, in that time. 
so uh and then you have two you know i have two young children so that's sort of an anti-mindfulness um exercise in and of itself <laughs> but no it's you know it's something that i sort of hold out as important and also you know that's another i think that's another thing that you have to continue to working towards is cultivating mindfulness i have you know i have ways of taking care of myself and i think that i'm pretty good at taking care of myself in some but that doesn't always involve sort of explicitly mindful activity, let's say. Can you tell us a little bit about those other things that you do to take care of yourself, even if they're not explicitly mindfulness? Uh, how, how do you do that? How do I do that? Well, I, you know, I like to exercise. So, and I particularly, I, I realized this year that I'm particularly into winter sports. So I'm kind of sad that winter appears to be on its wane. Um, I feel like this winter has gone by so quickly and everybody, you know, when you move to Montreal, I imagine, I don't know, being from other places, if this was your experience too, but people are really like cautionary about the winter. They're like, oh yeah, it's really it's nice, but it's really nice, but the winter, you know, it's really cold. And, and I've always been really excited about that because I grew up in a place with winter. I actually love really running in the winter more than the summer. So those are, that's some ways in which like physically I take care of myself. I, I always read fiction and I actually think of reading fiction as a very mindful activity because what has always struck me about fiction is the way in which it becomes, it's sort of a mirror that you hold up to yourself. The things that you take away from literature are, are very much in my mind, the things that are going on in your, in your mind and in your life. And the, the things that elements of a story or the way that people write that resonate with you in a moment. For me, I sort of hold up to my, that feel like I'm a, a reflective activity and tell me where I am in some ways. So I'm basically always reading fiction in some, some way. Yeah. That's uh, something that I think is really important as a, as a, as a means of self-care. For the longest time I <clears throat> had this idea that I needed to be reading nonfiction in order to be kind of developing yeah. as a person. Yeah. And yeah. then recently, I've also returned to fiction. And not only do I just enjoy it so much more, like it's really a pleasurable activity for me to be reading fiction. But I realized that I don't know where that idea came from. Why did I think that nonfiction was in some way making me develop more than fiction? So anyways, I've returned yeah, I to the fiction. The same. <laughs> yeah, I've, no, I've very much felt that same tension, like, oh, maybe I should alternate, maybe I should. And there are, you know, indeed, I think as I get older, actually, I enjoy, there's ways in which I enjoy nonfiction more than I did in the past. But I do, but in terms of thinking about what's, what I find most meaningful to me, and what feels more restorative to me is that I will say another thing that I think is really helpful to understand about oneself. I had always thought about extroversion and introversion as, as characteristics of an individual that were sort of about how you engage with the world outwardly. I'm struck by this piece that I either read or heard that was talking about how extroversion and introversion are actually describe are words that describe qualities about how you restore yourself as a human. And a lot of, you know, this is old news to a lot of people, but for me, it wasn't old news. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense because if I'm really tired at the end of the day, the thing that gives me, the thing that makes me feel better, spending time with people. My wife is completely the opposite. So if she's, you know, the, the way that she restores herself is by being alone, by isolating, you know, by, by, you know, just not engaging with the rest of the world and, you know, being about herself. For me, it's completely the opposite. And it's been actually really helpful to understand that about myself, because then I can recognize sort of 
what I need in some ways at different moments. And suppose that that is a, a way in which I become more become more mindful of what I need in some ways in, 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 in the world. And we can talk to each other about that. And, you know, I can know that if my neighbor invites me over at nine o'clock to have, you know, to join them for drinks with friends, people who I don't know at all, that makes me really excited. My wife gets exhausted by just thinking about that. <laughs> but she can say to me, I know that you need to like go do your thing. And, um, and that's good. <laughs> no, I think like certainly that's a component of mindfulness is learning about ourselves and learning about how it is that we re-energize. And it's always interesting, I find, uh, to, to reflect on the things that do make you feel really good um, and kind of ways that you can be compassionate with yourself and the things that also maybe are not as good for you. Reflecting on that a little bit, do you ever find that there is a bit of a conflict in your professional life in the sense that we have a constant sense of striving to succeed professionally and move forward. But then there's another component of just being at ease with whatever it is that's going to happen. And I'm wondering how you manage what seems like an inherent conflict sometimes, and I think can be true for a lot of people in medicine. There is a sense of like constantly needing to move forward and, and produce, uh, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You know, it's interesting because I had a year when I, when I left New York City, I had a year, I was expecting to get loan repayment in New York because I had a lot of loans as a U.S. medical student and um, I didn't end up getting it. And so for a variety of reasons, but I ended up saying to my wife, Caroline, I said, you know, maybe we could, maybe we should go do something for a year somewhere where we can sort of live inexpensively and pay off loans. And it turns out that the, you know, I think it's true in Canada too, the farther away from civilization that you live, the, the like more money you make. <laughs> and so I went and worked as a hospitalist for a year in Western Massachusetts, which was great. And, um, and it was, you know, it was like eight hour day, you know, I worked five, eight hour days and I made really good money and I was just a doctor. You know, I wasn't like, I wasn't a clinician scientist. I wasn't a, a you know, a physician leader. I wasn't, I was just a doctor. And it, there was something really great about it. There was something ultimately unsatisfying about it to me, but I also, but what I also thought a lot about at the time was, you know, it's one of the great things about this work that you can, you can just be a good doctor somewhere and that's okay. And it doesn't have, and, and even though I sort of have ended up in these places where it's like very, much like you described the sort of pressures are about what to be, you know, what to be and what to do and mostly about what to be. Actually, I think the fundamental realization I had over the last few years is that far more important than what you are in life is what you do in life. So I think much more about that now. And that's been, you know, I think liberating in some sense that you're not, this isn't, we're not working towards being something. I mean, we're all sort of focused on becoming a doctor in some ways, but really like life is much more interesting. I think when you think about what you want to do and how you, who you want to help and how you want, you want to orient yourself rather than what you are or what someone calls you or what you think you are. So anyway, I have thought about this a lot, this sort of forward moment, difficult moments where things feel really hard. I'll think, you know, I could just go like, I could just go be a doctor somewhere <laughs> or no, or a painter <laughs> or, you know, or something, but there's this something about this forward momentum that is, it's both intoxicating and also can feel like a trap sometimes. And the most important thing I think is just monitoring yourself for these feelings 
of resistance uh, towards whatever it is that we're, and, and, and trying to understand what they mean in any given moment and, and what they tell you about where you are and what you need. Because this is a tremendously exciting career, uh, you know, opportunity that we gain from going to medical school. Um, it's really, there's, it's a profound privilege to know that we have in many ways sort of financial security, job security of the most, you know, it's incredibly unique, I think, in, in many ways. And we can do so many different things. It's very exciting. And yet there are times where you think, oh, why am I doing this? <laughs> and taking, having the sort of wherewithal to think, okay, what does this mean? What I need right now, what I'm experiencing right now, and being mindful of that, I think is, is really the most important thing. And on that note, with coping with stressors and sometimes not coping well, what advice do you have for medical trainees who may be struggling with cultivating compassion for themselves or even sometimes for their patients due to this demanding nature of our training? This is going to sound really simple, but I actually found that the most important thing for me was sleep. <laughs> so I'll tell you that when I started medical school, like everybody else, I was really focused on doing well. I wanted to succeed. I wanted to get really good grades. And, and I remember doing what, I, you know, there was a sort of trope of like, oh, you have to see things three times in order to really know it. And so I would, I mean, I, like everybody else, my first six months of medical school, I would, I spent all, all my time studying just, and because I thought that's what you had to do. I thought that you really needed to study all the time. And if you weren't studying, somehow you weren't going to do well. And, and I was kind of like getting these middling grades. I was I wasn't doing that well. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to, I kind of took a pause and I thought, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to try to prioritize sleep above everything else. I'm going to get eight hours of sleep every single night. Second, I'm going to prioritize exercise. So I'm going to exercise at least two or three times a week or, or, you know, for an hour at least. And then with whatever time is left, I can study and, um, but I'll probably end up studying two, three hours a day. It was transformative. I graduated near the top of my class and I, and I don't say that to, to, to boast in any way. The amount of time that I spent studying got cut by half to a third and my grades went way up because what I learned was that all these people who, all of my colleagues who were spending, my classmates who were spending, you know, eight hours a day in the library after out of class learning, they were exhausted and they couldn't remember the things that they were learning. So they had to repeat them. And I would, I would learn, you know, I learned to focus on the things I didn't know, not to study the things that I did know. And to, and to, and what I found is that when I got to taking my exams, whether, you know, various types, I just remembered better because I was well-rested and it takes kind of a leap of faith, I think, to do that. But I had friends, you know, I've had, I've told people that over the years and I've, and I've had really positive feedback that they've had similar experiences. You know, our brains are amazing things, but you have to be able to access the information that you take in. I mean, it's always struck me that like, you know, under hypnosis, people can remember the most bizarre and random things. And it just makes me think about how our brains take in so much information that we can't use or that we don't end up, that it doesn't end up sort of on a daily accessible way, but that's there in some way. And I think with the intentional act of studying under when you're well-rested, I don't know, I found it to be completely transformative. And I was always really happy. <laughs> and I think that that's, that, you know, I saw my classmates become progressively more and more miserable through the course of their preclinical training and then their clinical training. I mean, I remember when I was, when I was a surgery clerk, 
I had to get up at like 4.30 to be in the hospital, which I, you know, this is why I'm not a surgeon for many reasons, <laughs> just one of many reasons I'm not a surgeon, but I would go to bed at 8.30 cause I was gonna prioritize sleep above all else. And it was, it was great. I mean, I just felt, I felt really happy most of the time as a medical student because I was really well rested and, you know, and my, and I, so that's my number one piece of advice. So that that's probably too simple, but get sleep. No, no, I think that it, that is the perfect advice. And it's so aligned with my experience. My first six months of medical school were very much the same. I was yeah. studying so much and I was so tired. And then I have a really good friend here in Montreal, Laura. And she said to me, she said, Zoe, nothing will ever be more important to me than my sleep and my exercise. And I have never forgotten that. And I just carried that forward. And on surgery, um, which is the rotation that I just finished prior to starting psychiatry, I was going to bed also at 8.30 p.m. uh, because we had to get up so early and there was no other way for me to learn at all during the day if I wasn't getting enough sleep. How else can you be resilient in the face of the challenges and the humilities that we face? Not humilities, the humbling experience. That's what, that's what I mean by humilities. I hope that people don't experience humiliation in their, mm-hmm. in their, that, that's, that's something, you know, I, I hope that people don't experience, although I, I, you know, I understand that that's something that can be part of the training culture in some places, mm-hmm. but, but, but it is humbling either way, right? Because we're learning and we're, you know, we're, hopefully failing forward in some ways as we, as we get things wrong, which we will, you know, you have to be resilient against that. Otherwise mm-hmm. it's devastating and it can be life-threatening, I think in some cases. So, so I think sleep is incredibly important. Yeah, I cannot agree more. <clears throat> so I feel like we've spoken a little bit about the things that we can do to look after ourselves. And I think we can maybe finish on a note of if you have any ideas about how, as learners, we can contribute to a culture that prioritizes personal wellness and personal well-being because I think it's it's still true unfortunately that there is a bit there is some toxicity in medicine um, when it comes to looking after yourself and sometimes it's viewed as uh, as the antithesis of looking after other people and I mean from where I'm standing it's completely in line with that in the sense that you can only provide the a level of care that that corresponds to how much care you give to yourself but what do you think that we can do as learners to contribute to that culture of wellness? Well, I think it's a really important and difficult question, but I think that, you know, culture change takes time in medicine. There's a lot of physicians who are still coping with generational differences in how people view wellness and the, you know, and, and the degree to which they're willing to prioritize that above, um, above other things. And that's, and that's hard. You know, I think that um, uh, as my mentor, Susan Block said, like, if you're not meeting resistance, then you're not making change. And that's an important thing. I, you know, I always hold that very close to me. I think that, you know, part of it probably comes from supporting each other, you know, when people need to take time for mental health um, reasons or other things, you know, which are hidden from us in some ways. And I think that trusting each other to, to do that is, something that takes a very proactive effort to say, okay, when I hear that my colleague needs this, I have to, I have to be supportive of their self-care rather than even neutral about it. Right. And I think the other thing is sort of being 
open and generous in that way with the people who are under you because this is a very hierarchical culture and you do find that you sort of ascend the, through the hierarchy very quickly. I just think we have to be generous with each other. It's It's been a sad reality that I've experienced that we're often not very generous with each other in medicine and in various in various ways. That's wonderful. And in light of being generous, we want to thank you so much for being generous with your time uh, and spending a portion of your Sunday with us to chat about all of these things. It's really been so wonderful. This has been another episode of Mindfulness in Medicine, a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at McGill University. Get show notes at themindfulmedicallearner.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or send us a message through the contact page on the mindfulmedicallearner.com.